Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. Thanks everybody for coming. Um, you probably all know who I am. Sarah as well, probably. If you don't know Sarah, she's the art director. Um, so today we're going to talk about a subject that this is just an excuse for me to talk about weapons and armour, something that I'm passionate about and I'm qualified, I'm kind of qualified to do so in two ways. One, I'm an artist, so you've seen my work on Pathfinder. Two, uh, just last year, I submitted my first academic paper uh, to the uh, International Medieval Congress, uh, which was very nerve-wracking, because I had to do it in front of men and women who were a lot cleverer than I am. And they had some questions that I didn't know the answer to. So, uh, so I'm going to talk today about historical weapons and armour, and and how they fit within Pathfinder, how they fit within fantasy, uh, and the difference between them. So I started out with this image of the man at arms. He's got a lot of weapons, clearly fantasy. What I'm going to do next, though, is we're going to play a little game. And this little game, I'm going to show you a sketch. I'm not going to say anything about the sketch. You're not allowed to ask any questions. All I will ask you is, is it fantasy or is it reality? And you put your hands up for whichever one you think it is. Okay? Right. So we'll go with the first one. Who thinks this is fantasy? Put your hand up. Who thinks it's real? It's practical. Okay? It's fantasy. So this is this is from the Lictor of the Torrent. Uh, from oh, I can't remember the adventure path. Anyway, um, so yeah, this is fantasy. Who thinks this is fantasy? Put your hands up. Who thinks these are real? They are real. These are 18th century from Indo-Persia. Uh, they are spiked weaponized gauntlets. You don't hold a weapon with these. These are the weapon. There's about half a dozen of these in existence. All kind of different shapes. The spikes are slightly different, slightly raised. Um, but, yeah. Next one. Who thinks this is fantasy? Yeah, this one's an easy one. Stripes, masks, hats. Who thinks this is fantasy? <laughs> Who thinks it's real? It is real. It is real. 
These are from the breastplate from the Booter Clan. That's definitely a uh, breastplate from the Booter Clan. B H U T A. 18th century. Um, and it is a representation of the goddess Varahi. There are about five of these in existence, all on the same kind of lines. Uh, these are ceremonial, almost definitely. However, the odd thing about these is they've been constructed to combat standards. So the breast, the sternum here, is reinforced like a cuirass. At the edges here, the metal thins to about this big. So even though they've not been designed to be used in combat, they've been made to combat specifications. Um, I've done a little bit of research on, on the boob plate, and I can say they're real. I've discovered about 13 examples. 12 of them I can verify. The 13th one, I've only seen a line drawing on this, and it's pretty damaged as well. I would say about three quarters of them are ceremonial. About a quarter of them could have been used in combat, and I would say one of them has definitely been used in combat. It looks, there are marks on it that look like battle damage. Um, to put it in context, there's more real life evidence for the boob play than there are for dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Who thinks this is fantasy? Who thinks it's real? It's real. This is one of um, Archduke Ferdinand's uh, piece of armour, and he made some. Well, he got made some really far out stuff. Kind of, like, I, I, I kind of had to choose from what I thought may have been the best ones. This is 16th century uh, Germany. Who thinks this is real? Who thinks it's fantasy? It is fantasy. It's the Jan's Temple sword. However, that's the original, that's the original temple song uh, that I based it on. Who thinks this is real? Who thinks it's fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that, it's that freaking sword. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it is real. Qatar from 17th century India. What's pretty amazing about these, and I've managed to I managed to get my hands on one. There's no springs inside, so this is it closed. This is it open. There's just a set of metal pins that rotate like this. So you put your hand here, and you can squeeze it, and the blade opens up. That it's absolutely brilliant. It's an amazing piece of technology. Who thinks this is fantasy? Who thinks it's real? It's 
These are 17th century uh, West African. Uh, these are all actual weapons. Okay. Thinks this is fancy. It is fantastic. I thought I'd catch you out with this one. So there are no historical examples of it's a it's a D and D trope. So where it comes from is one of these things it's called brigandine, and creators of D&D must have seen medieval pictures like these and gone, oh, right, that looks nice to be one of our What Brigandine actually is, is metal plates on the inside. The studs that you're seeing is what's holding the metal plates to the material. This is a 15th century replica from my hometown. It's called the Leeds Brigandine. And the next picture shows the Brigandine, what it looks like underneath. So these are the metal plates that are sewn it riveted on so it becomes a, a manoeuvrable piece of armour. This technology is used time and time again. So if we go to the next one, oh that's the, that's the lead, inside of the Leeds Brigandine. Even in the Visby garments, so these are 13th century from the Battle of Visby. And they look like studded leather, but if you look inside, see the metal plates again and this thing reoccurs okay next one who thinks this is fancy who thinks it's real you're all wrong because it is both fantasy and <laughs> 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 I issue <laughs> so all the examples of the Morning Star Flail were all dated 17th century however there are pieces of artwork which show the Morning Star Flail being used much much earlier this one's from the 14th century this one's from the 13th century However, all the pieces of artwork that show this weapon, they're all being used by enemy mounts. So these are Saracens, chaps in the other picture. They're also Saracens. And the idea is that these are propaganda pictures. They're going, ha ha ha, look at the enemy, don't they use silly weapons? Because a morning star flail on the battlefield is more of a danger to yourself <laughs> than it is to your opponent. So, that was, that was a useful little test for me. And I could see a lot of you, when I was asking you, is it fantasy or reality, you'd started to, you had no idea, and some of you were reluctantly putting your hands up, and you, you weren't sure. And that's the whole thing. Reality is a lot stranger than what we think it is. So, the kind of like history set a precedence for being kind of like, whoa, way out there. 
and doing fantastic things. Um, now, I'm going to go on to next about how weapons are depicted. Uh, so if we go on to the next one, this is an excerpt from the oldest fight manual in the world. This is manual 133, or Walpurgis uh, manual, um, which teaches you how to fight the sword and the buckler. You'll see here that the buckler's side-on, sword's side-on. Medieval art seems to do this a lot. Uh, medieval art focuses on what's important. They're less bothered about showing the direction of the swords. So when it comes to interpreting things like these, you know, the guys are kind of like they've got the sword side on. They're not cutting each other, but it's supposed to represent that. But you know what's going on. You can see the swords. And it's not just in fight manuals that are supposed to be textbooks on, hey, this is how you cut somebody's head off. It appears in all kinds of medieval art. And it's not until later on when humans start going, well, yeah, maybe we should kind of show the sword and kind of like a three-quarters angle thing. If we go to the next one, you can see exactly the same here. So the swords are side-on, the shields are side-on. It's showing what's important in the illustration in a kind of unrealistic manner. The next one. <laughs> Here's a handsome chap. <laughs> now, this is what a sword looks like when you're about to strike. So the blade itself is turned towards the viewer. You can see this pin sliver because as the blade comes towards the viewer, it's the cutting edge that's coming towards you. So this is what you see see this narrow, narrow strip of metal. And when it comes to illustrating it, I mean, you had to look to spot that. So, turn it, there we go. So that's me doing a medieval illustration. Turning the sword to face the viewer so that you can clearly see what it is. Now, Depicting sword and depicting combat is an entirely different thing as well. So, this is me about to strike. I've got the blade in position what's called Fontarg, which is also known as the roof, set to deliver straight towards my enemy. There's no fancy messing around, I'm not swinging the sword around in my hand. The sword's here, it's ready to be deployed in a number of a lot of medieval manuals say, start here, and then you can go straight into a zone how, a spurk how, crump how, shield how, or shuttle how. They're five hidden strikes. So, if we go on to the next one. <laughs> a lot of fantasy art shows things like this. You know, where the swords back there. In reality, if you did this in a fight, oh, <laughs> the sword's no good back here. 
You want the pointy bit here, <laughs> pointing towards you. <laughs> but if we go back, that looks cooler. <laughs> I look awesome. <laughs> so it's one of the things that as an artist you do is you're starting to tweak reality already I think some of the next pictures also show this kind of thing so even in medieval art and you're seeing the sword again side on and he's got the sword behind him there this is a quite a normal pose it leaves the viewer in no doubt that the person in the picture is swinging the blade, even though it's absolutely no good back there. Because it needs to be out here. I think there's a, some more examples. Here we go, exactly the same pose. And this is very, very common within medieval art. So already, humans are starting to create fantasy art. I mean, he's chopping the dragon's head off there. <laughs> and here we go this is a later fight manual this is from Tal Hoffer uh, she's kind of like late 15th century uh, Germany uh, and this is half sword technique and again you can see the weapons are being shown side on later on in this fight manual there's a judicial combat the guy in a hole He's stood in a hole. He's fighting against the woman who stood next to the hole, and she's got uh, a long flail. So let's move on to armor itself. So these, this is sections of armor, and all the terminology. So this is you can see them there. I don't need to explain them. <laughs> so, within Europe, there were three types of armor. This is known as Milanese style. You can see it's quite globular. It's functional. It's 15th century. This is 15th century as well. This is Gothic armor. This is from Germany. Milanese armor is from Italy. You can see. Gothic armour is a little bit more decorative. The Germans liked kind of like reinforced veins and flutes, whereas the Italians liked something a lot sleeker that was a little bit more deflective. You can see that it's completely covering the viewer. And then there's a third type. This is English armour. This is my armour. These are all the various sections, so this has been made to fit me. I've been measured, and this fits me. And we can go through the various pieces. I'll go through it quickly. Yeah, next one. So this is the source material for the arm. This is the chap who was buried near to where I live. He was killed in one of the biggest battles on English soil, where 1% of the country's population was killed. This chap, when he died, he was 62 years old, and he was returned to Leeds in two sacks. Oh my God. 
So, about the time to 1460. So you start wearing armour, you start with an armour jacket. Uh, there aren't many examples of armour jackets surviving. Because they're worn next to the skin, the manuals always say, worn next to the skin, they get just infused with sweat. Uh, and then over time, they very, very quickly rot. And you can see, it's just made of cloth. On the arms there are what's called voiders, which is mail. You may know, you may, you may know it as chain mail. However, the word mail is old French for chain. <laughs> so when you're saying chain mail, it's a tautology. You're saying chain chain. <laughs> so with the male voiders, you wear a male skirt as well. And this just goes around your waist. And these are also dorsum. So these go just on the top of your feet, tied around your ankle. You can see there onto the boot, and then over those go what's called sabatons. So all the terminology is old French because the language of nobility at that time during England was high French. So all the royal court spoke French. I mean, England used to own quite a huge chunk of France, and that's what it looks like. Once it's on there. Then we get the greaves, uh, always buckled on the inside. And then the quease, which is articulated leg piece, which fits just on the thighs there. You can see at the top these arming points here. Can't really see them quite well. They're kind of like holes at the top, and then the arming jacket ties here, so the crease is suspended from your waist. The armour itself weighs about 90 pounds, dead weight. Once it's on though, because it's held here, 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 that weight gets distributed. But it's still pretty much half of my body weight that I'm putting on when I put the armour on. Okay. Here we can see the crease cannons, and this is how they're suspended. You can see the arming points here, and the shoulders, you can't quite see them here, you can see the laces. Then we get the cuirass, the top bit's the breastplate, the bottom bit's the placard. These are folds, these are tassets. In two pieces to allow greater movement, so you can move the body like this. Now I can put the bottom half on, but putting the top half on, I need a squire. <laughs> just can't get to the buckles. That's, that's me being squired up. And then you get the arms there with the gauntlets, the pauldrons, close up with the gauntlets. And then this here is called the standard. Again, it's more male, goes around the neck. Bit here goes just under the chin, it's called the bever, which is high French for dribble. <laughs> and I've drunk water wearing this, and the water spilled out from the breath holes, dribble. And then the helmet's known as a salad. And you can see 
bad picture of the salad. No, that's better. Oh yeah, you wear the baby's bonnet as well. <laughs> totally unflattering. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you can see here, this is a salad. This is an English salad, also called by the Victorians lemon squeezer. You can see these veins here, and these are reinforcement plates where the, the metals could just be broken up a little bit. It just strengthens the metal. And these plates are kind of like here at the top because a lot of blows are coming down. The inside is what's called a spider, which is like a cat, spot the head. And that's what it looks like when it's all on. You can see here as well these veins on the cannons, the arms, they're known as barley twists. Very, very English. You don't see them in continental Europe at all. The idea is that the veins reinforce the armour and then the dips slow down the blow. Rather like if you imagine a skateboard half pipe, and the skateboard goes down, you gather speed. Gets to the bottom and starts going back up, the skateboard slows down. If you've got three of these on your arms here, what happens is when the blow comes in, it's fast, it goes slow, slow, slow. The blow gets slowed down. They weren't deaf. Yes, young man? So, given how complicated all of you ever was, yeah, still is, um, how realistic is. Like, how long would it take to fell? It takes me about 30 minutes. To fell someone. To fell someone. To kill someone. Yeah. Takes that long. So it's all, it's, it's all about landing blow in the right place. All the fight manuals talk about killing your opponent as quickly as possible and getting the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> getting a crate and running away. Getting a crate and running away. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the fight manuals say if your opponent doesn't do anything, you hit them in the head. And they all across the board are pretty much saying that. You know, if your opponent pauses, just hit them in the head. Um, but the armor here, it's very good defense against things like swords. You saw the uh, image from Talhofer where they're kind of like holding the swords here, half sword. Those are armor, those are fighting techniques to get through armor. What you're trying to do with half sword is go for the weak points, which is here, under the armpits, into the neck, into the visor, into that slit where your eyes are. A lot of medieval daggers are the perfect length and it's the length between the front of the helmet and the back of the helmet. Because when you push the knife into the visor slit, when you hear a tink of metal hit metal, you know when to stop pushing. <laughs> uh, so some of the other weak points are here at the wrist, here at the elbow, and what we refer to as the lower opens. There's a vein just here uh, that once it's cut, bleed out. So these are all legitimate targets. Uh, so with this, even though it's like half of my body weight, I can run, 
fight, jump. If I could do cartwheels out of armour, I could probably do cartwheels <laughs> in armour. A friend of mine can do cartwheels in his armour. Uh, go to the next picture. Here we go, that's, that's me next to the effigy of the guy who died in the church. Beautiful church. This is me. I'm not sure why I put the end, thanks for listening. Maybe when I was originally doing that. This is me doing push-ups in the armour. So it's, it's not as heavy as people think. It's not as restrictive as people think. You can fight. You can still be quick in it. It makes an absolute racket. So your stealth rolls are just like, yeah, non-existent. And here we go. I'm fighting in it. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm losing this <laughs> and I'm going to come back to this picture because there's something happening here that isn't happening you think is happening it's good yeah I'm winning this one look I'm happy <laughs> okay so we talked about armour seen all the bits. Let's go for equipment loadouts now. Real life equipment loadouts. This is 11th century night. These are the sort of things that they would be carrying on their person. Bearing in mind a soldier in campaign. He's got these are his all of his worldly goods. He's not going to keep them at home. He's going to want them on him. You can see variation. All of his equipment is kept in pouches and sacks and bags because pockets are a relatively modern invention in the 17th century. I find that as soon as you put pockets on a medieval character, it immediately modernises them. There's just something that we associate with pockets completely modernises. Same with high heels. High heels is a relatively modern invention. Slight coming around kind of like the Louis heels started coming around about the 17th century. So as soon as you start putting heels on, it And the heel first started coming into fashion, well, fashion or use around about the 11th century. And it was the Normans that invented the heel, which was just an extra strip of leather to stop your foot from sliding out of the stirrups when you were riding your horse. Not a shock absorbing thing. Our feet are so used to heels now that we use them as shock absorbers when we walk. It wasn't the initial use of the heel. We're going to the next one. This is a 13th century knight. Still that kind of thing. This is how much equipment they're carrying on them. And the Pathfinder iconics that you see, their equipment is pretty bang on to this. You get people kind of like going, they couldn't possibly carry all this stuff with their bags and their pouch. No, they fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go, 15th century night. And all those equipment. And here's a modern song. Yeah. This is the amount of equipment that they carry. Now, funnily enough, this amount of equipment weighs the same amount as this amount of equipment. <laughs> weighs about nine pounds. It's half a human body weight. 
at some point during history, human beings have worked out, we can put this amount of shit on you, and you can still fight. And this seems to be constant throughout history. Okay, let's go to the next one. So, here we go, see got that same amount of equipment that you see on those loadouts. So, see if can do that. The next one. There we go. There's Sealer's equipment loadout. She's got just as much stuff, if less, than what you're seeing on the historical loadouts. It's almost exactly the same. She's carrying the same sort of things. She's got belongings in the pouch, all the various items. It's Belarus. He's kind of like, he's a little bit of a pack rat. He's got as much stuff as well. Belarus is wondering. Yes. He's, so, if you can have fantasy characters with that much stuff, then why not magicians? Why not have magicians with that much stuff? If you're going to have magicians with that much stuff, why not elves? Let's introduce elves and give them stuff. If you can have elves, you can have goblins. <laughs> the possibilities start to open up. When you start looking at history and going, right, if humans have this much stuff, if historical warriors have this much stuff, then fantasy warriors can have this much stuff. And if fantasy warriors can have this much stuff, then your only limit is your imagination. So, in a world of possibilities, you can have a goblin who's carrying a powder keg on his back. <laughs> you can have a knight wearing a suit of armour made out of lava. The only limit is your imagination in which to do this. In order to do this, Obviously, you need to know what armor looks like, you need to know what lava looks like, you need to know the lightning effects that lava does. But once you've got all these elements, you're starting in the mundane, you're combining these elements to make something fantastical, something from the imagination, something that doesn't exist in real life. And yet, there it is, it's on the paper. Next one. So, if we discount things that aren't in real life. So, this is a great example. Dragons don't exist. So, we'd have to get rid of the dragon. So, dragons don't exist, neither do dwarves. So, we'd lose Harsk. If dwarves don't exist, elves don't exist. So, we'd lose Mauricio. Now, Kyra worships different deities. They don't exist, neither does magic. Neither does fire, so we'd lose Kyra as well. I invented that, so that doesn't exist. We'd have to lose that as well. <laughs> so this is what we do. When we make stories, when we create things, we're creating things that never existed. We're creating things that never were. You can then start assigning your attributes to things that don't exist. And the parameters are your imaginations. 
and your levels of believability. Now, people's levels of believability are different. So some people's parameters of believability start here with a historical warrior, whereas some people's levels of believability go right up to here. Some people's parameters of believability go right up to here. <laughs> the limit is your imagination and what you can believe, your suspension of disbelief. Now, suspension of disbelief is inconsistent. We're, we're an unpredictable bunch, we humans, and especially when it comes to imagination, yeah, we're kind of like there's no hard and fast rules I and mean, it's down to the individual so some people's parameters are this <laughs> so they have no problem believing in dragons and go oh yes dragons yes I can, I can believe that they are then they want realistic warriors fighting them but as soon as you give a big big sword to a woman then no no I can't believe this it's like completely inconsistent and this is down to the media this is down to <coughs> shown by the media. So if you can see it on screen or on a game, you don't have to use your imagination. It's provided for you. Which is why some people, their parameters are down here. And, that's, and it's not a bad thing, it's just the way that we are. So, yes, I think that's. Is there one more? <laughs> so if medieval people can come up with fucked up shit like this <laughs> we as modern people sky's the limit the only limit is what we can imagine so thanks for listening do you have any questions other than we have a new ancestry to come up with <laughs> it's the killer rabbits uh you put your hand up first. So, I mean, growing up, you could probably use it for you to roll over the lead snaps and take a look at some of the arms, some of the armor. Uh, for Leeds, or, no, no, Leeds Castle's 200 miles away in Kent. Oh, okay. Are they really? Yeah. Okay. And Leeds Castle is oh, 200 sorry. miles away in Kent. You see, what happened was, due to tectonic drift, <laughs> kind of all the nice parts of Leeds kind of migrated down south and the dirty southerners stole it. <laughs> I'm planning an attack to retrieve it. <laughs> so, point is, in terms of familiarity, a lot easier to think lot more difficult if you grew up in America. But now with the internet that seems to have flashed out. So has has that has the internet helped with research or has the internet caused raised the noise to signal level? Have you been to a museum? There, not not everyone has a museum. Contrary to popular belief there aren't sort of like medieval piles and armor just hanging around in yeah. I had to go and do my research. Just the same as if you want to see armor you'd have to go and do your research. And there are places in America that are some very, very good museums. And yeah, you have the internet as well. But nothing, nothing beats seeing it in real life. And 
one of the, I keep talking about when coming to a convention and just shipping my armor over, you know, kind of like sat on my art desk in the armor. I want to see this. When and there's there's a difference seeing armor in real life, seeing it on television or in books, because you don't get you don't get that feeling of weight. You don't get the sound it makes when you move. And armor's pretty threatening stuff. Um, one of the things I also do is I do school visits and I walk into a classroom in the armour and kids are just like, whoa, they've got, they're in tank shock because for them, there's just, they've not seen anything like it. Armour is a weapon itself. So there's, a, there's an account from a 14th century battle it talks about a knight who's lost his sword, he's lost his side weapon, his dagger, also called the bollock dagger, or rondel. So he survived the battle by punching people in the face. <laughs> he's described walking away from the battle with tatters of bloody flesh hanging from his gauntlets. So, kind of like the armour itself becomes a weapon, and it's kind of like seeing it in real life. You just, it conveys that sort of power and menace about it. Um, so yeah, you can kind of like see it online, but as with everything in art, it's better if you see it in real life. And once you understand it in real life, then you can start to depict it. And when it comes to fantasy art, if you start with something in real life, like the armour made of lava, so you get the armour, get the lava, put them together to create something fantastic. How long would it take with the squire's help for you to get all that armor? About off? half an hour. Um, <laughs> aside from your local library or looking up the uh, International Medieval Congress, what would be a good starting point for that kind of research? Uh, about sort of like medieval arms and armor. Yep. Yep. Library, books, Amazon. Um, <laughs> It's there's there's no there's no kind of like there isn't one kind of one sort of area source of knowledge. You've got to start checking, uh, going through your sources. Start online, try and find book recommendations. Look on Amazon, see what's been recommended. It depends on where your kind of area of interest is. Um, for for artists, the Dorling Kindersley books are brilliant they're all photographic reference um, and, and they're all pretty good photographic reference you can't beat it other than real life uh, I had a really quick one an actual question what century was this from? Uh, this is from the Macclesfield Psalter which is I think it's 12th century I'd have to double check on that but I think it's 12th century. And then my other one, when you were talking about the armor and you got the question about uh, the most effective way to put someone down, it seemed to be all the joints. It made me think of, like you're here, yeah, yeah, these joints. Yeah. made me think of some martial arts stuff that I know is for like traditional jiu-jitsu, which was when uh, like Japanese warriors or whatever lose their weapons in battle. They'd be attacking people wearing armor. And it's all these throws where you're attacking the joints. And I wondered if in your research you found other sorts of similarities between completely 
distant or divergent peoples doing stuff with armor and weaponry where it's like they both came to the same conclusion a different way. Um, there is there is a degree of crossover within martial arts. So I study historical European martial arts and you can always tell when someone new comes to the class what martial art they've been doing previously. So you can tell if they're offensive, you can tell if they've done karate because of the moves and the way that they're standing. The stances and the styles differ. But body mechanics are constant. So you get some crossover within martial arts where some things are just constant. Yeah, when just you said work the thing for of, like, you're just going for the yeah, head, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's, that sounds about right. Um, the end of the day. Like, yeah, the, the historical uh, armor wrestling is similar to uh, Eastern wrestling because um, they're, they're described in the manuals uh, and a lot of them a lot of them are they're not really throws it's all about uh, overbalancing uh, your opponent because human oh. beings are amongst some of the most unique creatures on this planet in that we walk on two legs there aren't many other creatures that totally walk on two legs birds for one but even primates kind of like monkeys they're essentially four-legged animals even though they can stand upright they also use four legs we are exclusively bipedal and it takes us a long time to learn how to walk when you're children how long was it before you you start to walk and it's because of the fine motor skills that you need in order to walk on two legs. The balance is incredible. If you see actual real-life bipedal robots, they all move really weird. <laughs> you know, they, they're kind of like, their legs are kind of like this and they're like that. <laughs> it's because they've not come up with a gyroscope or a balancing system that quite matches the human brain. And we're a finely, finely tuned, we're all very, very familiar with our own body weight and our own centre of balance. Put armour on somebody and it messes about with your centre of balance. You become top heavy. So the first time I started wearing armour, I'd take a step and I'd go, oh gosh, I, I, I think I'm going to fall over. Uh, and when I walked, you know, I was kind of like going, like this, to compensate for what I was perceiving as my centre of balance being disrupted. But in martial arts, because you are top-heavy, all the combat techniques are about pushing your opponent over and levering them over and basically bouncing their head onto the pavement. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? You showed a gauntlet that had spikes on it. Right. Are there historical armors that had spikes? Um, so, European... <coughs> European armor didn't have spikes, um, and an, an Asian armor didn't really have spikes either. Um, it's spikes are kind of like more of a fancy trope. I mean, spikes look nasty; they look shit nasty. So, and we associate spikes with kind of like evil things. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a kind of fancy thing. What was the uh, it, it was all 15th century English armour. <laughs> um, 
Understanding that reality can be weirder than fiction is sort of a two-part question, but I'll try to focus it towards one. Is there a particular weapon or armor in Pathfinder that you would sort of say to Eric, this was not a practical weapon, take it out of there? Or on the opposite, like, is there a weapon or armor piece that is not in Pathfinder that you would recommend that they put in? Um, that you know. Um, I, I, I chat. I chat with Eric quite a lot, and we 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 kind of like had uh, video conferences uh, and we talked about weaponry. You know, and I've been sat at home and, and we talked about warhammers or something like that. And I've gone, but yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, one of these. <laughs> um, I'm I'm chiefly to do with visuals. I'm not I'm not a rules person. Uh, I'm not a game designer. So things like brigandines, I, I can suggest them. Um, whether I think mind you that I think I have illustrated things. I think I've illustrated weapons, and the design team is kind of like gone. Ooh. Those are cool. Those are cool. We'll we'll put these in. We'll make these a weapon. So, I mean, like I say, the the limit is is your imagination. So if you can kind of invent a weapon, you know, like a dog slicer, that's that's a great example of a completely made up weapon. I just kind of wanted these crude ass, kind of jagged. I mean, they wouldn't work in real life. As soon as you try cutting somebody with those, they'd be caught on clothes. But goblins aren't real either. You know, we're talking about something that isn't real, wielding something that isn't real against something else that isn't real. So you can go, oh, well, that wouldn't work in real life. This isn't real life. This is fantasy. <laughs> I did ask you what your favorite iconic was. You had a very quick answer. See, look. Yeah. <laughs> a favorite iconic. Weapon, like a weapon that I come to whether it was the one you were drawing most or no, 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 I, I like I like all my children. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any more questions? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see your say your little finger going. <laughs> uh, that earlier picture when you were losing and you set the pitch for something, was that? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Oh. well remembered picture that, that I was losing so you saw this sword like that the blade pointing backwards so he wasn't striking like that, he was striking like that with the pommel, which is where the term to pummel somebody comes from, using the pommel of the sword, or a pummel of the sword that needs to be a fighter theme <laughs> if you're wielding a sword, you can use an action to strip the pummel. I think we're out of time. Yep. So thanks everybody for coming. I hope it was informative.